Read Isaiah 45. What I want to do this evening is what I've been waiting to get to. It won't be just this evening. It's going to be a couple of evenings. And that is to raise the objections that the mind raises naturally when it thinks about authority. You know, Paul did that so many times. He said that thou wilt say that unto me. Thou wilt say that unto me. In Romans chapter 9, he raises the objection and he answers it. And that's what I'd like to do this evening. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, for the glory of your great ordinance of authority, for the glory of your great name, for the sake of our peace, our unity, our preservation, our happiness, our obedience, bless us to understand the things that shall be said this evening. May the things be said in wisdom. And may they be to our profit and to your pleasure. O oh Lord, bless them to be profitable to each soul here. May Jesus Christ be exalted in all of it as we rejoice in your word and what it has to teach us. Thank you, O oh Lord, for your mercy toward us. To our brother Bruce, to our entire congregation, continue to preserve and keep us. We're trusting in thee for fruitful days, weeks, months, and years to come, if Jesus Christ cares. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. I am not going to review at all. We have spent a great deal of time building the basis for these objections. Objection number one that I have heard raised, that I've raised, that I think is probably in every heart, when they hear about authority, stress the way I've tried to stress it, is this. Objection number one, I find it hard to believe and accept and love what you're preaching with authority because I might get stuck with a bad ruler who will use his power that you've given him to abuse me and take advantage of me. Does that make sense to you? I am leery and nervous about the way you preach about authority because I'm afraid someone can get in a position of power and you've given them such absolute power and authority they can hurt those under their rule. My answer from the Word of God is this. First of all, to object against a position of power or a person in that position is the same as objecting against a number of other circumstances that God has already taken care of in your life. How many of us know that we ought not to look in the mirror and object about things we cannot change. Now, I know we look in the mirror and we change a lot of things that we can change, especially you women. But we don't. We aren't supposed to look in the mirror and, and object, resent God, if we're not as tall as we wish we were. If we were larger bone than we are. If we, didn't, if we had more of a gift of beauty. We, we shouldn't object against God, who as creator made those decisions. We understand those things to be choices God made on our behalf without consulting us, and a wise person doesn't fight those matters. When we think about physical features, and I've just mentioned physical features, what about physical capabilities? You know, the capabilities of the bodies in this room vary. There are no, there are no two bodies in here alike, either in looks or in ability. How about mental capability? It's all different in here, and God made those choices. Those that have been blessed with a greater degree of intelligence should not hold that over those who have not. Those who have not should not resent those who have 
nor resent God for not having given them that gift. It is a choice God made, and we ought not to fret against it. We look around sometimes and we see financial opportunities. Why did that person get such an inheritance? Why were they raised in a home where they had so many more opportunities than I had in the home I was raised in? God made those choices, and I believe everyone here is mature enough in their Christian faith to know they ought not to argue against God relative to those matters. If you know that, if you know that, authority is no different. God made the choice of the ones that you're under just as well. You say, and if you say, well, God just might put me under some man that's going to take advantage of me. Well, God just might deprive you of wisdom so that you're not a very intelligent human being and you end up suffering in this life compared to some man that God blessed with a greater degree of intelligence. The reasoning's the same. You're fretting against God. And you're not trusting God. When we talk about authority, we are trusting the providence of God, maybe, more than any other subject I have ever brought up in this church. It is the providence of God. So that you, who are hurt by family relationships in your past, and you look back and you say, it makes me nervous to hear authority stretch so much because I was taken advantage of by those in authority over me. That was God's providence in your life. And it's not for me to fret against that, to fight against it, or to argue against it. That was God's providence in choosing that for you, for His greater glory, first of all, and for some purpose in your life, second of all. God made those choices. Isaiah 45, verses 9 and 10, gives us this basis for not arguing against those over us. Isaiah 45, and verse 9, Woe unto him that striveth with his Maker! Exclamation point. Woe unto him that striveth with his maker. Let the potsherds strive with the potsherds of the earth. Shall the clay say to him that fashioneth it, What makest thou, or thy work? He hath no hands. We understand from that text that if God wants to make a human being without hands, that human being does not have the right to say to Almighty God, You forgot to make me with hands. God made a choice that someone might come into this world without hands. Shall the clay say to him that fashioneth it? No, and neither should any man say to God, what have you made? You made a mistake with me. God doesn't make mistakes. To our natural reasoning, they may appear not to be in our best interest. But a person that puts their trust in God knows that it was to God's glory. And if a person puts their trust in God and obeys and utilizes what God does to them, and even may appear to be evil, it will be in their best interest. It will be in their best interest. And that's hard to say. That's hard to say. I know some of you have hurt that's far greater than mine from your past. I know some of you. I could name some of you, you. And you know I know. And I mean what I'm saying to all of you too. If we trust God, we know that it's for His glory the way He did things because whatsoever our God did in the heavens, He did because it pleased Him. And whatsoever pleased Him, He did it. And it was for His pleasure, and it's for our profit and our glory and our best interest if we learn to submit to it. Now we fight against it. It turns out to be one terrible ordeal to go through life bitter against God and against fellow men who God blessed more than we. To go through life that way is not pleasant. Verse 10 says, Woe unto him that saith unto his father, What begettest thou? Or to the woman, 
What hast thou brought forth to complain about the way we've been made, either against God or against our parents, which is the position of authority over us that brings us into this world, is a question that ought not to even be asked. It's right. a way of reasoning that ought, not, ought to be fought down in our hearts. It ought not to take place. Rather than fret against being what God has made us, we should be content and make the most of what God has given us. And that applies as well in the rulers he has chosen to put over us. We're born into a nation where we have political rulers. The timing of your birth relative to that man's reign is part of God's providence. I mean, do you think God knew that? Do you think God knew that you were going to be born during the reign of Harry Truman? Or, or someone later than that? Or someone earlier than that? God knew your birthday. He knew the date of the reign of that particular president. And he put those together in his providence. God chose your ruler. The rulers we get are the wise effect of God's providence in our lives. Every act is for His glory and it's for our profit if we learn to submit to it and utilize it. You know, sometimes you may have an evil ruler in your life to teach you patience. You may have an evil ruler in your life to teach you submission because submission cannot be taught by a good ruler. Right. You can't learn submission. Submitting to a good ruler, why it's wonderful to submit to a good ruler. It's just great. You need, a, you need someone that's forward to really learn submission. And, and when you look back in your life, those of you who have hurt and pain, and there's one relationship that causes more hurt and pain, probably, than any other, and that's parents over children because of the youth and the ability to oppress by parents. For those of you who have hurt and pain, there is profit in it. Somewhere in God's Word and sometime in your experience and in time, you will find that that was for the glory of God and your profit to make you a better person. Without that, you could have been far worse in some area of weakness that you presently have. You don't see. The problem is we can't see all that. That's right. Because we're not God. God is able to see what you would have been without that particular source of oppression in your life. It could have been a lot worse. That's right. Our duty is to obey and honor those in authority over us anyway, and not to worry about someone taking advantage over us. See, all, if we worry, who are we worrying against? If we fret, who are we fretting against? We're fretting against God, because God made the choice. You know, in our society, with all the liberties we have, and we do have a lot of liberties, don't we? We get to choose most of our rulers. It's never been like that in the history of the world before. You know, you didn't get to choose your parents. That hasn't changed yet. I don't know how they'll do it. They'll try to do it. They'll try to do it. I don't know how they'll do that one, though. Even if they start treating test tube babies and forbid, you know, Bruce was telling me about some crazy book he had to read for his uh, degree that he's working on. And all by the year, the next century, you know, no one will have children the way we have them now. It'll all be done in laboratories, and they'll select parents for particular genetic uh, weak strengths it will result in the children, and so all babies will be chosen scientifically by computers in order to perfect the human race. You know, even then, though, if it ever gets to anything like that, or even close to that, and you know people have been talking about that for 10 or 20 years, if it gets to anything like that, a soul still comes in this universe under subjection to a particular set of doctors, scientists, parents, foster parents, whatever that God chose, right. because he's still providentially in control. Sure. 
and the weirdos that they come up with will not fear God and will not have wisdom unless God gives it to them. In our society, though, we've got a great deal of liberties. While we enter into voluntary marriages where women get to agree or disagree with those that they're going to marry, they get to choose the man that's their husband. And so to fret against it, to worry about that, really, to be uh, biting the hand that wants to feed you in 20th century America because you have the liberty to make choices in that area. We have the right to quit employment. You know, hey, you don't like your job? I've always said you've got one right. Employees have one right. In America, it's the only right they've got, and that's to quit. You don't like the way your boss treats you? Go get a new job. That's right. You didn't always have that ability. Your dad may have sold you when you were eight years old to go be a bond servant for someone. Eight years old, you know? You, you got your earlobe stuck up against the door and a hole drilled through it. That's what the Bible says, and you were that man's slave. And you didn't have the right to quit. We have the choice of churches, uh, not for our congregation, but we, you know, Americans, for the most part, have a great choice of churches. They get to choose. You know, in the nation of Israel, as you get to choose your religion, you can make one choice, and then you couldn't even choose your manner of death, because that would be the next choice that would be made for you. There was no choice. We have a great deal of choices, and yet people still complain and worry about authority. They, they want to fight against authority. The first authority structure we meet with teaches us the most about authority. It's the one God brings us into where we are totally incapable, and that's with our parents. And if, we, if, you, if, if you can just stop and think about your relationship to your parents, it settles questions of authority. Did God consult you when he picked your parents? Did God consult you? Did he ask, what type of parent might hurt your feelings more than others? What type of parent might promote your education more than others? What parent liked ball because you were going to like some form of ball or sport? God never consulted you about any of that. God made the choice for you. He did not ask you what kind of parents you would like to have to protect you from being oppressed and abused by parents taking advantage of their office. He never asked you. He simply gave you your parents. And some of you had parents that took advantage of that office and misused that office and oppressed you. And that doesn't vary with any position of authority. Because God in this world has put authority in the hands of sinful men. And there will, it's always going to be imperfect administration of authority, always. Right. But it's what God has chosen. It's what God has chosen. Did God give you as a child any ability to escape your parents? None. I want you to think about it. First of all, did God consult you for your parents? Some of you say, I thank God, and I hope you're thinking this right now. Some of you should be thanking God that out of two billion parents in this world, that's one billion families more or less in the United States that stores that because it's not two for one relationship. If you follow what I'm saying, it usually takes two parents to make a family, except in this country. Out of a billion family possibilities in one generation at the present time in this world, God made a choice. And many of you have a great deal to be thankful for, and some of you right. simply have had to trust God that has delivered you. 
God give you any ability to escape? As a young child, if you, as a young child, let's say five years of age, when you thought that your parents were no longer in your best interest, could you get rid of them? When you were eight years old, when you thought your parents were no longer in your best interest, we all thought that way, didn't we, at times? Could you get rid of them? Did God give you a way of escape? What about 12? What about 18 for some of you? Still difficult, and it ought to be difficult. Because the submission that God requires is still expected. We are totally subject to the mercy of God in delivering us from parents. I want you to think about that. We are totally subject to God's mercy in His providential choice of the parents we have. Right. What do we do about it? Do we worry about that office? Do we get rid of the office of parent? Do we get rid of the office of parent because it can be abused? You say it's not fair for a person to come into this world subject to a set of parents that could, have, that could destroy their lives easily. How many lives have been destroyed by parents who abuse their office? Many children are always affected by their parents. It's a choice God made, the administration of this world. It's a choice God made. You know, why, why, do, little, why do old Methodists who get together and have little babies always have little Methodists? Why do older Buddhists who get together and have little babies always have little Buddhists? Ever thought about that? Why? I'm telling you, the choice that God made of your parents are the most far-reaching effect of all on your life, and you weren't even consulted, nor did you have a way of escape. And if we would stop and think about that, the other four authorities' fears fall into place easily. You had no choice in that. You had no participation in that. God didn't consult you. You, didn't, you couldn't even escape it. The effect parents have in lives cannot be exaggerated. You are your parents to a great degree. Cannot be exaggerated. God made the choice. God made the choice. They can ruin our lives. They can bless our lives. God made the choice. But you give me some little child who puts their trust in God or a medium-aged child who puts their trust in God and they'll be delivered. God hears the cries of the fatherless when yeah. fathers leave them. God hears the cries of orphans. God hears the cries of those that are oppressed and delivers them. Right. That's where we put our trust. It's not in wanting to undo or limit God's authority structure. That isn't where our safety is. Our safety is in trusting in God. Amen. Because what will you do with parents? Start with parents. Always start with parents. When you want to hang the pastor, start with parents. When you want to get rid of your boss, start with parents. When you can't stand your husband any longer, and you don't want to submit to him, start with parents. And think about what God did in the choice of your parents. He put someone in authority over you that could ruin your life and that you weren't consulted for. And what effect did they have on you? And was God merciful to you? Has God, and even if they weren't good parents, did God deliver you from them? Our trust is in God. You know, and God doesn't could care less what you think about your parents as long as you think they're as long as you think of honoring them, and as long as you think of obeying them, and as long as you think of fearing them and reverencing them, the other things God doesn't deal with in his word. He wants you to obey, honor, fear, and reverence them regardless. Because of the office he put them in. I might get stuck with a bad ruler who takes advantage of me. Well then you shouldn't have come into this universe. 
You should have stopped the process in the womb. You should have, wait, don't let this conception occur. You should have stopped it because coming into this world means that the most influential authority relationship in your life was chosen by God without your consultation. And the effect that those two could have on your life cannot be exaggerated on what they do to make us what we are today. Proper understanding here. Proper understanding about this fact that it's God's providence that puts pastors over us, parents over us, that leads us into marriage, that brings national rulers over us, that gives us masters in employment situations. When we think about these things, it ought to move us to pray for those in authority. When we read in Jeremiah 29 and verse 7, when God told the Israelites when they went into Babylon to pray for the peace of Babylon and for the rulers of Babylon, that Babylon might have peace, we should understand and appreciate that more because Babylon was the providence of God, a pagan, foreign, usurping, oppressive nation that destroyed and raised the city of Jerusalem was God's choice for those people. Some of you came into this world, the children of parents that took advantage of you. Some Israelites came into being during the 70-year captivity, the captives of a hostile nation that had taken them captive and raised their capital city and their temple and took the vessels of that temple and put them in their, their, the temple of their pagan god. It was God's choice for all that to take place. Therefore, in the word of God, we're told to pray for the peace of Babylon. Right. That in the peace of Babylon, we might have peace. And we're to pray for the peace of all the authority relationships that we're in. All that are in authority, the Bible tells us, 1 Timothy chapter 2, so that we, we, we may lead quiet and peaceable lives in all godliness and honesty. The solution for quiet and peaceable lives is not restricting authority. Paul never said, for you to have a quiet and a peaceable life, make sure that you sign the petition or rise up and revolt against the Roman Empire. It's pray for Caesar. You say, how can anyone pray for one of those Caesars? Well, if you've listened to authority the way I've preached it recently, I hope we'll speak more respectfully of them all. Right. The angels themselves don't bring, didn't bring railing accusations against the Caesars, nor did they bring a railing accusation against Adolf Hitler. Sure. And whatever you may think about Adolf Hitler, at least I have one thing to say to the German people. They are generally more submissive to authority than the American people are. That's right. And from that standpoint and that standpoint alone, without saying one thing about his policies, they were more godly than Americans are. That's right. Their rulers, by the providence of God, got them into a war and got them into, quote, atrocities, if they ever occurred, that they were involved in. God and his providence did that, and those people obeyed their rulers. Now, there's a time to disobey, and we'll get to that on the checks of authority, and it's God's word, and it better be flagrant. Right. It better be flagrant. God made choice. They obeyed. You say they were all goons. Listen, how many things do you think you're obeying right now were nothing but goons? Listen, you're, you've been paying to fund abortions. What's the... Listen, everybody squawks about the Germans because we have a system in our nation that's designed to create how you think. Right. Oh, so, okay, they killed 6 million Jews. What about the 15 million babies we've taken care of since 1973? Right. 
Let's hear some squawking about that. That isn't the issue. The issue is submission to authority, whether it be Adolf Hitler or a Roman Caesar. It wouldn't have mattered to Paul. Paul said, submit yourself to every ordinance of man. Well, Peter said that. For the Lord's sake. Paul said, the powers that be are ordained of God. The powers that were at that moment when he made that statement with the Roman Caesar. Whether it be your parents, your masters, your pastors, the national leaders you're under, or the husband that you have to submit to, God in his providence made that choice. You don't protect yourself by restricting their authority. Nowhere in scripture are we taught to protect ourselves by restricting their authority. Do you all hear me? The protection of God's saints is not in restricting their authority. The protection of God's saints is praying for those in authority. Right. Whether it be Ahasuerus, the king of Persia, did they pray for that king? What did they move that king to do? To let Esther come into his room and give a request. Did he hear the request? Did he honor the request? What happened to all the Jews' enemies? Did they get that blessing by taking the law into their own hands? By trying to restrict authority or praying for God to move authority? Praying for God to move authority. Paul said pray for the Roman government. We should pray for our government. My point right here is, if it is God's providence that brings us under the rulers that we have, it ought to drive us to consider verses like 1 Timothy chapter 2 more seriously than we have in the past. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 2. I know you know it, but we ought to look at it. We ought to look at it. 1 Timothy chapter 2. This is Paul's instruction to another minister. This is what I am supposed to teach you. 1 Timothy 2, the first two verses, I exhort, therefore, that, first of all, this is an important issue. He brings it up early in his first epistle to Timothy. I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. Every one of us wants to be able to have a quiet life. We don't want oppression. We don't want to be abused. We don't want to be taken advantage of. Every one of us wants the quiet and peaceable life that is described right there. Now, there are a lot of people that will tell you the way to get that is to restrict government. Rain government in. You don't have a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. And when the government no longer makes you happy, overthrow that government, make one that will make you happy. That's how our nation was started. That's how it still exists. That is not the solution. The solution is to pray for all those that are in authority that God will deliver us from any evil intentions on their part, that God will give them wisdom, that we may lead a quiet and a peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. That's exactly what we want is right there. And you know, as soon as a child is born, as, well, as soon as a child has understanding about the age of five, if God has touched them, they ought to be asking God for their parents. We ought to be teaching our children this is the basis of authority, children, God gave you to me. And if you want to pray for me to be a good father, or your mother to be a good mother towards you, then pray for us. The solution for you to have a quiet and peaceable life is not limiting the power of parents. It's praying for God to move us to be the best parents you could have. That is the whole, that's the way the Bible's set up. We pray for our leaders. We don't try to overthrow them. We don't try to restrict, restrain, or control them. We submit and we pray for God to intervene on our behalf. 
And where does God generally move? But through kings. How many kings need I mention in the Old Testament that God moved through to bless nations? I mean, did God raise up a little shepherd boy to become king over Israel and save them from Saul? Did God raise up other good men to take care of that nation? Did God raise up men like Sennacherib to perform his strange work of judgment against Israel? Did God raise up Nebuchadnezzar? Has God raised up President George Bush? How old is George Bush right now? 60 years of age, 62, something like that? Somewhere? Listen, God's had his hand on him for 62 years. I believe that with all my heart. From the day that boy was conceived, the womb, my God knew that he'd be president of the United States of America. And he's prepared him for that job. And you are not to look and try to cast pass judgment on him that he's not doing his job like he should. Nor should we be afraid of that position. We should pray for it. Right. We should pray for it. Submit to it. Pray for kings and for all of their authority. When's the last time you prayed for your boss? Let's be realistic. When was the last time you prayed for your boss? Doc supervisors. It's a hard one, isn't it? You know, when I think back to the days of Michigan National, I didn't do very much praying for my bosses either. Most of you probably think they're beyond the help of prayer. The way the natural mind thinks. We ought to be praying for them. You want to know what your protection is? It's not in the union. Your protection is not in the union. Your protection is not in some grievance committee that you get to go to and rat on your boss. Your protection is in begging God for your boss. Look what it says. Supplications, prayers, intercessions. Now those three are asking and giving of thanks. Be made for all men. And the all men there are all sorts of men like kings and for all their authority as opposed to other citizens. Supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks. Are we doing that for everyone that's in authority? If you realize the providence of God that's involved in those that are our rulers, this becomes very important. No wonder Paul said, I exhort therefore that first of all, everybody wants a quiet and peaceable life. I don't care if Karl Marx wrote about utopia. I'm telling you about utopia right now. You want utopia? You pray for it. You want rulers that are benevolent? and take care of you and protect your liberties to worship God, protect your liberties to have a family as God dictates in His Word that blesses a nation with economic prosperity by wise decision making. You pray for them. You supplicate God for them. You intercede on their behalf. Wouldn't it, wouldn't it be great if before the God of Heaven there was a congregation in Greenville, South Carolina that interceded on behalf of President George Bush. I mean interceded. I mean acts as a go-between between that man and the Almighty God. Intercede on his behalf. You know, Jesus Christ makes intercession for us, and we can make intercession for that man. And I'm not talking about things that can be seen. George Bush may never know. I'm talking about something in a spiritual realm that transcends all the power that you can see with the natural eye. Amen. Because as I told you a couple of weeks ago from Daniel chapter 10, there are princes in this world you can't see. And I believe we ought to be interceding on behalf of the prince we can see against the princes we can't see. Right. There are some princes God has given to this nation to protect us. And it is amazing that in 1991, we are still as blessed as we are. Right. I remember in 1967, 1968, when this nation was burning to the ground, and the Black Panthers, White Panthers, and every other type of panther, and the SDS, and all these groups across this nation. I mean, 1967, I was 10 years old. Boy, in 1964, I was seven years old. I heard the evangelists. My father used to take me to these evangelists who were always describing the doom of this nation 
And he said by 1967, the communists would have taken over America. I was seven years old, and I realized at 10, I wouldn't be old enough to have my own guns, nor could I drive. I was in terror for three years. In 1967, it still hadn't happened. I went to hear Jack Van Empey. He said in 1976, they'll do it in Philadelphia. They're going to, communists are going to take over America. Listen, God's continued to preserve this nation. They've taken over a lot of things. There's a lot of influence in our nation for evil, but we still have all the liberties, and in fact, some more than we did 20 years ago. God has been very merciful. There's princes fighting on our behalf, and there's princes fighting against us in the spirit world. We ought to be interceding on behalf of our rulers. And understanding the providence of God ought to drive us to prayer. Now listen, I don't know when you were born. If you were born under President Nixon... President Johnson, President Kennedy, we could have got into World War III with, our, with Cuba, with East Germany, with Vietnam. It could have been World War III. Your father could have been killed. Your brothers could have been killed. You could have, you could have been drafted. Our nation could have been taken over. All sorts of things. You can't control that. Can you control that? You can control that. That we may lead a quiet and a peaceable life in all godliness and honesty, we do it by prayer. It is not our place to call kings in question, nor is it our place to restrain them by some magna carta. It is our place to pray for them. Listen, God could have put a king in office that doesn't need a magna carta. He's always done it that way. And he can put a king in office that whether there's a piece of paper called a magna carta or not, he's going to call the army and trample right over you. It always comes back to God. Constitution, you think the Constitution's your protection? Every, if you haven't filed your income tax return yet, and I hope you all have, if you haven't filed it yet, as you sign that, the original right authors of our Constitution certainly never had anything like that in mind. They walked right over that. We have to trust in God. Pieces of paper will not protect us, but a living God will. And we have to trust in God's providence. If you have difficulty with this objection, if you're still thinking, it's, it's not that simple. There's still, you're missing something. You've created so much power in these offices of authority from the Bible that they can take advantage of it. I want to remind you to go back to point two, which was the source of authority. Remember all the time we spent there, how God created the offices. We did not dream up these offices sitting around a fire in a cave. God made them. God made the men for them. God preserved those men. God prepared those men. And God moves the spirits of those men while they're exercising that office. And I want you to go back and look at all the references to, the pro to prove those points. If you have a problem with it. But one more point. One more reason to answer this objection. It is confidence in the providence of God that brings peace and right. security. If you want to really be at peace, it's not to hear that the communists are going to take over America, therefore you ought to have some firearms, educate yourself, and have a ton of wheat in the basement that you can grind up for your breakfast cereal when there's nothing on the store shelves. That doesn't create peace. That creates worry and care. And a lot of us came from that background. Now that doesn't mean to be imprudent. But to concentrate on that is missing the boat. Right. And the boat happens to be God is our refuge. Amen. And to trust in Him every night. Except the Lord keep your house, 
you lock the doors in vain. That's right. That's right. Unless the Lord bless your job, you are diligent in vain. We have to trust God. That's right. For our national rulers and for all of our rulers. But let me show you a couple of verses that should give you some peace. Look at Psalm 9. Psalm 9. This objection. But the way you've set up these positions of power, someone could get in them to take advantage of me. Well, what about your parents? Remember I said, start with your parents. God made that choice. You know what we, you know what we trust from the moment of conception forward? God's providence. You get outside of God's providence in every one of those spheres of authority. You are, in, you are on a sea. You are in a ship at sea with no course nor compass. You have no direction. You have to disband everything. You have to undo all authority. The first one God introduces us to in our lives, we were not consulted. It was not voluntary. There is no escape. And the damage that can be done is exceeding great. And the blessing that can be given is exceeding great. And I hope there are prayers going up from hearts right now that are thankful for their parents. I am. Right. And for those of you who think back on pain and evil memories, God had some purpose in it. Thank God for delivering you. You are sitting here right now, and I don't know anyone right now who is severely oppressed. And the fact that you're in this assembly, hearing the truth of the gospel, and are in family situations as I can look around and as I know in this congregation, God has been merciful to you. Amen. Psalm 9, verse 18. Oh, i got to get verse 17 too. When did I use these verses? What series did I use these verses for? The wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. The needy shall not always be forgotten. The expectation of the poor shall not perish forever. When I preached an abortion a few months ago, I want to focus on verse 18. The needy shall not always be forgotten. The expectation of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the heathen be judged in thy sight. Put them in fear, O Lord, that the nations may know themselves to be but men. My point is this. You're under authority. Authority can be abused. Abused authority can mean you suffer for it. The needy shall not always be forgotten. The expectation of the poor shall not perish forever. God has created the universe under authority, and he gives us promises like this. You may think you are so insignificant. You know, in your minds right now, brethren, you can easily picture, some of us have never pictured it in our own lives, in our own families, but abused children. I do think and I do feel about abused children. But I know the solution is not getting rid of parents. Now some dad goes and beats his son to death. They ought not to put it on TV. One thing ought to go on TV. And it's not a whole lot of trials. And it's not foster homes or anything like that. It's an execution. And it's a slow one. Defend those little ones. But there's a God in heaven I trust far more than that. Amen. There's a God in heaven that said the needy shall not always be forgotten. The expectation of the poor shall not perish forever. Doesn't it bother you every time someone's conceived in the nation of China? 
Every time a child is conceived, he's going to spend his life in absolute gross darkness and poverty. Does that bother you? Ethiopia? The Zulus? In South Africa? Every time a conception occurs, poverty, gross darkness. God is the provident ruler of this nation, this world, this universe. And he says the needy shall not always be forgotten. Those that are oppressed unjustly, the expectation of the poor shall not perish forever. God will deliver them. Look at the 12th Psalm. The 12th. You say, what purpose does God have for conception occurring in China? Ask him when you get there. For his glory, I know that. Amen. It's for the ultimate, grand, glorious design of a creator God that has the right to do with clay as he sees fit. Amen. And any thought outside of that, you are lost. Because that is the foundation. Listen, it'll drive you to insanity. It will drive you to insanity if you get moved off the stone I'm trying to lay for your feet. You will start worrying about those conceptions, if you think at all. The conceptions that occur in nations like that, those poor little helpless children, they never have a chance against Buddhism. Naturally thinking, naturally speaking. But there's a God in heaven. There's a God in heaven that can deliver them. Psalm 12 and verse 5. Listen to, listen to our God speak. For the oppression of the poor, for the sighing of the needy, now will I arise, saith the Lord. I will set him in safety from him that puffeth at him. Listen to that verse. For the sighing of the needy. There's needy all over under authority. There are poor that are being oppressed. But God will arise, and I will set him in safety from him that puffeth at him. Our duty... Our goal, our aim should be to pray for those in authority and to pray for God to deliver those that are oppressed and poor. He's promised to do it. You know you could be praying according to the will of God. Psalm 72. Psalm 72. Psalm 72 and verse 4. He shall judge the poor of the people. Judge doesn't always mean... A negative judgment, he'll judge on their behalf. <laughs> he shall judge the poor of the people, he shall save the children of the needy, and shall break in pieces the oppressor. Verse 4. What, what system do you think you'll set up to save the poor and the oppressed? Here is the system God has set up. There are high in this world. Oh, I, got, I can't cheat. That's a verse I'm getting to. Psalm 72, verse 12. For he shall deliver the needy when he crieth. The poor also, and him that hath no helper. He shall spare the poor and needy, and shall save the souls of the needy. He shall redeem their soul from deceit and violence, and precious shall their blood be in his sight. I don't care whether it's abortions. And you say, well, how can God preserve them? They're, they've already lost their lives. I'm not God, and I'm not going to answer that definitively, but I know one thing my God can do. Because there can be a whole lot of souls in heaven that right. never even heard any sound outside the womb. That's right. 
God is able to do that, and he says that he delivers and saves the souls of the needy, and the precious shall their blood be in his sight. Don't you think that you're the world's savior? You know, as Americans, we tend to think that we ought to be the champions to save mankind. What, what's this new world order? You know, you've heard, let's make the world a safer place for democracy. You know, and they've had that since World War I with the League of Nations, and then the United Nations after World War II. Why, America's going to save the world. The salvation of the world is through God and praying to Him, not the United Nations, the United States or the United Nations thinking it's a Savior. Precious shall their blood be in His sight. There's one that takes care of them. Now look at my last text, Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Do you think Solomon in all his pursuit of wisdom, did he ever sit around and think about oppression? He said he did. Before I get to chapter 5, look at verse 1 of chapter 4. Solomon writes, So I returned and considered all the oppressions that are done under the sun. How many oppressions was that? How many oppressions was that? That was all of them. I considered all the oppressions that are done under the sun. Now what did he write about them? 5 and verse 8. You should love this text. This is... This is the answer to this objection in one verse. If the way you set up the office of authority, if evil men get into them, they can abuse that office and take advantage of those under their rule. The answer, if thou seest the oppression of the poor and violent perverting of judgment and justice in a province, marvel not at the matter. For he that is higher than the highest regardeth, and there be higher than they. That is the answer. You want to go to bed at night and rest? It's Ecclesiastes 5. You are not higher than they. What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? You pray. 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2. And then you rest in the confidence that there is one higher than they. You look at some of these rulers that we've looked at in Scripture that we see in our world, 1 and 2. And then you rest in the confidence that there is one higher than they. You look at some of these rulers that we've looked at in Scripture that we see in our world today, the ones in the world today don't match up to the ones in Scripture, as far as the authority they had, you think about Nebuchadnezzar, I mean, simply say, I'll pull down the beams of your house and set up a gallows, hang you on it, and turn your house into a dunghill. That was the little note you got from the king. And said, congratulations on the birth of your child. You know, we do live in a different set up than they had under Nebuchadnezzar. But if you saw oppression in province, and you saw the poor being oppressed, and you saw violent perverting of judgment and justice, marvel not at the matter. For there's someone higher than they, and they'll be accountable to him. Everyone in authority is also under authority, and God Almighty put them in that office, and he can take them out of that office, and he can deal with them severely while they're in that office. He can take a king and put him on his hands and knees. Until he's put in a leash wandering around in his yard for seven years, barking, eating grass, his feathers, his hair growing out like feathers, and his nails like claws. The greatest, most glorious king the world's ever seen. There's one higher. And when he came to his senses, guess what lesson he learned? There was one higher than he. And now I honor. I love Daniel 4. If you don't get tears in your eyes and you read Daniel 4, you've got a problem in your heart. 
Daniel 4 is not Daniel's words about Nebuchadnezzar, it's Nebuchadnezzar's words to all of his provinces about Nebuchadnezzar. He, is, he wanted to tell them what the Most High God had brought toward me. And it wasn't a pleasant story, but the end sure is. Now I honor and extol and praise Him whose ways are right and just. And those who walk in pride is able to abase. He is indeed. Ecclesiastes 5.8 is your answer. The, the only other alternative you have is to try to restrict and restrain authority. And God nowhere in His Word has called you to that. We're to pray for it, and we're to submit to it, and we're to trust in God who is our refuge. And God hears the cries of the poor and needy and delivers them. And how many times has he done that? Did we have? Let's talk about the American Revolution for just a second. Some of you have just been appalled that I said I might have been a royalist. You might have been a royalist too, so don't get appalled. You don't know. Let's just go back for a moment. Let's forget the sides. Were there any of our ancestors in the faith in England, in Wales, in Scotland, in Ireland, in France, in Germany, who begged God for deliverance from oppressive governments who would not let them practice religious liberty? Were there any? Whether it be right or wrong, in the way that it was set up, were their prayers answered? Were their prayers answered? Was there a nation that allowed the free preaching of the gospel? Indeed. Did the effect of that nation change the course of those nations? Indeed. The Lord hears the cries of the poor and needy. And listen, some of you in here might be under bosses. Some of you wives might think you're under tyrannical husbands. Hope to God you're not. You shouldn't be. Their place to trust is in God. Not in restricting his, his authority. Not in you correcting him. That isn't your safety. Your safety is in begging God for all that are in authority including husbands, masters, pastors, and our national leaders. Objection number two. My master is obnoxious. You just don't know what it's like to work for the man I work for, and I cannot submit to him any longer. The, the word cannot is a capo. What they're saying is, I will not. But my master is so bad, you don't understand it. I can't submit to him any longer. It may be a parent, it may be a husband, it may be a pastor, it may be a master. Peter has answered this very plainly, and I've been over this so many times, there ought not to be much trouble here, but it still comes up. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2. I have heard, but you don't understand. You haven't seen my master. There's one race that always says this. You don't understand, because you're white. You don't understand because you're white. You've never been called nigger in the workplace. Uh, I've been called a whole lot of other things. <laughs> Hell, some of them worse than that. First Peter chapter 2. This, there's a great section here on authority. Verses 13 all the way through verse 7 of chapter 3. I only want to read three verses, beginning in verse 18. Servants. Be subject to your masters with all fear. And here comes the objection. The objection will say, but I've got a bad master, therefore I don't want to be in subjection to him with all fear. So Peter answers the objection. Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the forward. For this is thankworthy. This is what God commends. If a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully, God expects authority to lead us 
to suffering. You, you follow that. What I'm teaching you isn't total salvation from suffering. It's how to cope with suffering. And you cope with suffering by having a conscience toward God. God said that that man is my master and I'm to be in subjection to him with all fear. That's how I'll cope with it. That's what God teaches. He doesn't teach us how to avoid all suffering. He teaches us how to cope with it and how to handle it and how to endure it by conscience toward God. God said it. God created the office. God created that man. I believe God was in charge of that man's conception as much as he was mine. I believe in the timing of events in this world. God was in control of bringing that man to be my master as much as me being his servant. God knew I would be in this situation. He had some purpose in it. Therefore, I'm going to submit and be in subjection with all fear, even though he is a forward master. Right. This is thankworthy if a man's able to do that. Verse 20, for what glory is it? If when you be buffeted for your faults, you shall take it patiently. Do you think you're a real good worker when you've done something wrong and get chewed up with a boss, you take it well? You're being mocked here. You haven't what glory is it? Is that glorious? You ought to be chewed out if you if you've had some faults on the job. But if when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. You're doing a good job. Someone, your master, mistreats you. He's forward. Forward means obnoxious. It means rude. It means perverse. It means crazy. It means not rational. That's what the word forward means. The forward man isn't a reasonable man. He's an irrational man, an obnoxious man. And the Lord knows sometimes we're going to work for people like that. Now, he said that. It's not your job to go in and say, I just want you to know at the conclusion of this review, you're a forward master. And that's from the Word of God. You don't have any right to say that. Right. You know, Christians think because it's in the Bible you have the right to go preach it. This is the place for preaching it. That would be what, what's that called in the Bible? Answering again. And what does it say in Titus chapter 2? Not answering again. Servants are not to answer again their master. Job 34 said, is it fit to say to a king thou art wicked? No, it isn't. It's the right to say to princes, you're evil. You're wicked. No, it isn't. God said it here. God knows you're going to have a forward master. Listen, every husband in here has been forward at times. You children, you children, listen to me. Your dad's going to be mean sometimes. Your dad's going to be angry sometimes. And if you're old enough to understand what the word means, your dad's going to be downright forward. I'm not moved by it, are you? So what? Everyone in authority is going to be forward from time to time. What's the solution for it? By conscience toward God, you bear it. You endure it. You endure grief. Suffering wrongfully. Because you're suffering wrongfully, you don't say, but I've got my rights. I was wrong in this thing. Dad, I want you to apologize to me. That's answering again. That isn't your place. I wonder what those words sound like. <laughs> Some of you, I hope, are wondering too. I hope you're able to apologize. Well, how are you to handle a forward master? Be in subjection with all fear. Not only to the good and gentle. Peter knew the subjection was coming and he answered it, but also to the forward. And it's conscience toward God that's the basis for it. And I've tried, I've spent five sermons before this one trying to build your conscience toward God. That God ordained the office. 
God chose the man, God prepared the man, and God's moving the man when he's forward. Because if God did not want that wrath shown towards you by that master, I want to tell you, my God is able to restrain it. Surely the wrath of man shall praise thee, and the remainder of wrath thou shalt restrain. And if your master is showing wrath towards you, my God wants it shown towards you for some lesson in your life. And do you know how you handle it? Unless you want a whole lot more, you endure it. You endure it, you don't answer again, you submit to it in conscience toward God, and beg God for your master, and thank God for him, and bless those that curse you and persecute you. Right. Now, now that, that's perverse teaching, isn't it? Everything I just said in one sentence goes absolutely against everything in your mind. The natural mind. Pray for them. Submit to them. Thank God for them. Bless them. Overcome their evil with good. Love your enemies. Is the way to handle it. We're not bound to submit to the good and gentle only, but also to the thrower. It's our conscience toward God and His ordinance of authority that causes us to endure grief and to suffer wrongfully. Well, we, as Americans, we think if we suffer wrongfully, then it's time for us to stand up on our two hind legs, take a gun, and defend our rights. That is the American way of doing things. And it's wrong. Right? And there's part of us that loves thinking that way because it's the flesh that thinks that way. When you are mistreated by a master, he's being a forward master, and as a forward master, you're to submit to him and listen to this great nation. God's given you one right that you still ought to thank God for. And I mentioned it 15 minutes ago, you don't like it, quit. You don't join a union to go out and destroy that master. And that's what unions are for. You don't do things our way to make us the masters. We'll destroy you by the collective power of all of us walking off the jobs and prohibiting anyone else coming to work for you. To even think of that happening to a master makes my blood boil. But I know there's one being in heaven whose blood boils at a higher temperature than mine. Because though they be high, there's one higher than they. And he thinks less of servants riding on horses. Let me show you that text. Ecclesiastes chapter 10. Solomon saw this too. Ecclesiastes chapter 10. Ecclesiastes 10.5. Solomon says, There is an evil which I have seen under the sun, as an error which proceeded from the ruler, and what a warning that is. Verse 6. Folly is set in great dignity, and the rich sit in low place. Where ought the rich to sit? In high place. Guess why they're rich? Because they deserve to sit in high places. Our nation is bent on taxing the rich to reduce them to the level of the poor and letting the poor have a free ride. That doesn't make sense. That's honoring the poor at the expense of the rich. Who do you think made this nation? They were the poor working classes, the backbone of America. Listen, the backbone of America would still be swinging on grapevines if it wasn't for the capital of rich men. It is the capital of rich men that made this nation great. You go to job and you stick your little cardboard card into a slot, and that clunk says, you get to pay, you get paid from this moment forward, and when you leave, you clunk it again, and it gives an ending date, an ending time, and you get paid whether that business is making money or not, I want to tell you that is a luxury. And who's taking all the risk of that? There are people that can't sleep at nights that are responsible for that business. 
Right. And they gave you your job. I have seen an evil, Solomon said, under the sun. Folly is set in great dignity, and the rich sit in low place. Verse 7, I have seen servants upon horses and princes walking as servants upon the earth. I mean, today, when uh, executive officers of a company have a car, they, they almost have to feel guilty about it. You know, Lee Iacocca has been criticized in the paper recently because of the amount of money he's paid. He's been paid. You know, last year, Chrysler Corporation didn't make very much money, but Lee Iacocca... I can't remember the amount of money he made, but it was several million. And he's been criticized in the paper, and people have been made to feel like he's taking advantage of Chrysler, and it's not fair. I want to tell you something. If it wasn't for Lee Iacocca, there wouldn't be a man to complain that had a Chrysler uniform on, because if it wasn't for Lee Iacocca, there wouldn't be a Chrysler Corporation. He deserves to get whatever he gets. There's an evil. You know where it proceeds? And this is the sad thing. It proceeds from the ruler because the ruler allows it to happen. And we have a nation that's allowed it to happen. It should never have happened. You say, it doesn't sound like you like poor people very much. Listen, God will defend the poor and the poor will be striving to be better than they are. And God will take care of them and bless them. And this is the way God made it. When it comes to honor, when it comes to position in society, the rich are there for a reason. You don't exalt folly, and you don't exalt the poor. You keep them in their place. We have a nation that tries to exalt them, and look what we've got. You have a forward master, what do you do about it? You have a conscience toward God, and you remind yourself, this is the way God set it up. I'm going to trust God, I'm going to pray to God about this matter, and I'm going to submit and endure the grief. It's submitting to a forward master that treats you evil, and it's the only way you can truly show that you've learned submission. I'll, I'll say it again. I've said it many times before. A master that treats you well, you haven't learned submission yet. I cannot emphasize this enough. You do not know submission until someone in authority offends you. You do not know submission until someone in authority offends you. You do not know submission. You do not know what it means to reign in the human spirit and submit and endure and keep the mouth shut and not fight back and not speak back until someone offends you. The first time your pastor says something that offends you and you want to fight back, you'll find out what submission is. The first time your boss tells you've come and you've been working on a project for three days, you've worked overtime, two hours a day, ten hours, thirty hours, and you come in with the project, he takes one look at it in three minutes and says, I don't like this format. Why don't you shift it here? Instead of these being columns, make them rows, make these rows the columns. And I know what happened to me inside of me every time I heard something like that, and I believe the heart of man answers to the heart of man, and it happens inside of all of you. Why you? Well, you do. That's when you learn about submission. Because submission is breaking that down. All you husbands love to sit around and hear about, hear about submission. And how many times a day do your wives have to do that? You tell them to do something they don't want to do. That's where they learn submission. And it's hard to do that. And you know it when you're told in job that you've done something poorly. Or that uh, they want it done differently. Or you're told to go do something that you dislike and that someone else in the office or the client should have been chosen to do it. You learn submission. This is thankworthy. A man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. 
that's something that God can thank. That is glory. You want to be glorious? You want to be glorious? It's not submitting when your pastor is wonderful. It's not submitting when your husband is wonderful. It's not submitting to the perfect boss. Oh, my boss is such a great guy. He's my friend, too. Listen, you haven't learned submission yet. Submission is when you have to reign in a spirit that is welling up in anger and rebellion because that master has offended you. Or your parents have offended you. That's when you learn submission. Right. Or your husband's offended you. That's when you learn submission. You don't learn it when they're being peachy. What glory is it? It is glory if you can submit when they're being forward. My master is obnoxious and I just can't submit to him any longer. You know the complaining servant that says those words? If he were ever made master, his lot as a servant would be worse. If the complaining servant who says, My master is so obnoxious I can't work for him any longer, if the rules reverse, it'd be worse. If what I just said is not true, then everything about God's ordinance of authority falls to the ground. Because God has a position of authority better men than those under the authority. Amen. If that is not true, then the God of this universe is the most crazy mixed up being that's ever created the world. You put a servant in charge and things will be worse. You know what a servant means? If the spectrum of managing a, managing a department is this big, a servant sees that much of it. When people in a church complain about their pastor about this much, there's that big of a picture. When a wife complains about what her the choices her husband's making, usually she's complaining about something like this when there's this to look at. It is the broad perspective of someone in a position of authority. He put a servant up there to be worse. By the very nature of the fact that God has chosen men to be leaders and rulers over us, and there are superiors, not only by office, but by ability. That is a natural selection process also that confirms that. Not always. Sometimes God raises up base men right. as a form of judgment. Sometimes God takes away rulers. You've heard me teach that too. But in general, you put the servant up there, it'd be worse. So instead of complaining, we ought to submit. And do it agree. Do it thankfully. Do it prayerfully. And trust God to deliver us. I'll quickly cover one more objection. Someone says, I'm under a ruler that doesn't live the way I think he should. I'm under a ruler that doesn't live the way he think, that I think he should. And if, he, if he'd do a better job at ruling, this is the way it's put sometimes, if he'd do a better job of ruling, I'd do a better job of submitting. If my husband would love me more, I'd submit better. If my parents would spend more time with me, I'd obey them more and honor them more. If my government wouldn't tax me, I'd pray for them too. Look at Matthew 23. Look at Matthew 23 quickly and I'll finish. But here's an objection that's raised. This objection is, if the one in authority would do a better job, I'd do a better job under their authority. You know, wives will sometimes depend, defend their insubmission to me, to others, to themselves, to God, by saying, if my husband was more loving, I'd submit more. If my husband cherished me more, I'd be more submissive. And I would, I'd reverence my husband if he cherished me. 
What does Jesus have to say about that type of an attitude? Matthew 23, he said about the Pharisees, he said in verse 2, the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, all therefore whatsoever they bid you observe, that observe and do, but do not ye after their works, for they say and do not. Here we have Pharisees that themselves didn't keep their own commandments. They were hypocrites. They, they put burdens on men's backs that they themselves wouldn't lift a finger to do that were told in other places. But they sit in Moses' seat. What's the, what, what is the obligation? What is the duty? What is the thought that ought to fill our minds? Not half fill our minds, but completely fill our minds. That seat is a seat established under Moses by Almighty God. Therefore, I ought to obey it, even if those Pharisees in it aren't behaving themselves the way they should. A wife has no reason to think. Her mind ought to be fully occupied with one thought. God created the office of husband. God created my husband. God providentially brought my husband over me. Therefore, I will submit to my husband, even if he isn't a perfect husband. Listen, there's a relationship that you're ignoring, women, and that's between God and that husband. And that's a relationship the husband's responsible for, not the woman. People under authority get way too distracted sometimes of thinking they're God in control of the one in authority. God has that relationship all taken care of. There's one higher than he, if you're talking about a husband. Our duty when we look at a person in authority is what do we owe the person in authority, not what they owe us. We're always worried. We're always fretting. We're always complaining about what the person in authority ought to be doing toward us. That isn't what the Bible teaches. Nowhere are servants given any leave to even think about what masters ought to be doing toward servants. When God wants to address masters, guess what one word he uses to start the instruction? <laughs> masters. He doesn't say servants. Make sure your masters are good and fair. He says masters, because that's the relationship between God and the master. Your relationship with the servant is, how will you submit to your master? We get all too much confused, concerned, and worried over what's not being done toward us. That isn't the issue. The issue is to each one of you and me, individually, what do we owe those that are in authority over us? What is God requiring of us? God will take care of them. And I'll try to preach on both sides of every authority equation. But women say, well, if my husband would love and cherish me more, I'd be able to submit to him better. They're missing the boat. They're forgetting what we just covered, 1 Peter chapter 2. You're going to have a forward husband sometime. You submit anyway. You endure grief. It's glorious. It's thankworthy from Almighty God. And it's not your place to worry about your husband. Pray for him. Thank God for him intercede on his behalf and offer up supplications for him. That's what you ought to do. It's not your place to go around correcting him and telling him how to be a perfect husband. It's not your place to be dropping tapes on marriage into his lunch bag when he goes to work and he's trying to Tape number five, maximizing your marriage. Listen, you think you're a real good health that way, huh? Now maybe you've got a husband you can do that too. Thank God for the liberty. And trust your pastor and trust God and trust your prayers to save you from an oppressive husband. Because your husband doesn't love you doesn't mean you shouldn't submit to him. God doesn't even bring that into the equation. Wives, 
Submit to your husbands in everything. Every one of us fathers know that at times we have used our authority over our children. Every one of us know that. Does that give them any excuse not to obey us the next time? They don't mix. That doesn't mix at all. It doesn't have anything that doesn't even mix. That's all that's going to happen. And yet our children are responsible to submit to us. Sometimes wives will also defend their insubordination because they look at their husbands and they say, my husband doesn't submit to his master at work. I'm not picking on wives, I'm just using it as an example. It works best for this particular case. Sometimes wives complain, my husband doesn't love me enough. If he loved me more, I'd be, I'd be more submissive. If my husband was more of a leader, I'd be more submissive. Well, God may have given you a husband that's not as much of a leader to see how well you're going to submit in, hard, in a hard situation. And it requires more. But just remember, the man that it's easy to submit to, it's also hard to live with. There's, there's a balance, listen. There's a balance there. Don't start thinking that you've got, you're the worst case in the whole wide world. You're not. But that is no excuse for you not to submit, not to reverence, not to serve your husband. And then the other case is the wives will sometimes argue that, well, my husband doesn't submit to his master. You ought to hear the things he does to his boss. Same situation. Doesn't, doesn't affect your relationship with your husband whatsoever. You are responsible for Almighty God for your relationship with your husband. Our children are responsible for their relationship to their parents, whether their parents submit to the authority they are under or not. Now, I'm not recommending that those in authority abuse the relationships they're in at all. But I'm saying it doesn't affect the obedience of children. It doesn't affect it doesn't affect the submission of wives. Everyone in authority is a hypocrite to some degree because we're all sinners. I can't say enough that God has chosen to put sinners in positions of authority. And by the very nature of that relationship, if sinners are in authority, sometimes the authority is going to be hypocritical. Sometimes the authority is going to be exercised unjustly. That is no excuse for not submitting to it. God has already covered that. Sometimes there will be oppression like that and we're to submit anyway. And in cases like that, we're doing something glorious that God Almighty takes recognition of. That's something we're to pray about. We're not to fight it. We're not to oppose it. We're not to look for some means to limit authority so that that can't ever occur. We're to submit to it and trust God to deliver us. Instead of worrying about what those in authority are not doing, let's make sure we worry about what we ought to be doing. Instead of worrying about your boss not treating you fairly, make sure you're treating him fairly and let your thoughts stop there. Because that's what God has called you to do. May Jesus Christ be praised with a group of people that are acting glorious and are thankworthy by their subjection to God and to the authority that He's ordained in their lives. Amen.